All right, well, we are in our study of Colossians, going out of order. Uh, who knows what Kelly's going to You're preaching next week, right? Who knows which chapter or verse or whatever he's going to preach. But it, we're going to the beginning. Okay, he's going to the beginning. Boring. Um, no. Um, so we're in Colossians, and um, uh, let's take a look at our verse for tonight, or our verses for tonight. Remember last week... We talked about the fact that Paul said that Christians, by virtue of their trust in Christ, uh, have become heirs of everything. Uh, That Jesus is the heir of all things. And that people who have put their faith in Christ are connected to him. And therefore, they are heirs of everything. They have access to all the goodness and the grace of God that is, is in Jesus. And that is all the goodness and grace of God. Believers are vitally connected to him. And everything that is in him belongs to us by birthright of grace. And there are no second-class citizens in God's family. There are no saints, Christians, who have less access to him. None. Now, there are many who imagine themselves to be second-class citizens. But that's not according to what God has said in his word. We all have access to all the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel, that we were cut off from life, that we were cut off from the help that we need to live. So last week, Paul warned the Colossians not to be captured by counterfeits, not to regress, not to go back to secondary and partial and temporary practices that were meant to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. And we said that going back, if they were to go back to these practices, for example, if uh, Gentiles were to be circumcised, it'd be like getting your PhD and then going and enrolling in elementary school. Like you've, you've done all that. You don't need to go back. You have passed. It would be like learning to ride your bike, riding proficiently, and then going and putting training wheels on your bike. It'd be preposterous. And again, last week we said it'd be like somebody coming into a vast estate, somebody coming of age into a vast inheritance, someone who's been under lawyers, under guardians for years, and then suddenly saying, you know what, take it all back. Uh, I want to be under guardians again. I want to be babysat again. I want to be protected again. Paul says, don't go back. You've been given everything in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you don't need anything else. And then finally, Paul said that he wants them to walk in Christ. They've been connected to him. Now, Paul wants them to put Christ on and and drive around and bring him into the details of their life and learn how to bring who he is and their connection, their vital connection to him into all their speaking and doing and thinking and playing and rejoicing and resting so we're, we're called to this life of walking in Christ. Well, Paul's going to continue with this theme of warning and this theme of don't lose what you've been given in the gospel. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to address this word, the flesh. All right. At the end of this section, Paul says that these practices that he's worried that they might go back to are of no value in restraining the flesh. All right, he says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
Another translation says they are not, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. But I want to stick with the flesh because this is a favorite word of Paul's. But it's a word that's hard to get our minds around and get an understanding of. So what is the flesh? That's what I want to spend a little time uh, doing tonight and then draw out some principles from the passage. So what is the flesh? Well, it's important to keep in mind that for Paul, it has a whole range of meanings. And it's worthwhile when you read him to try to discern what he has in mind. So I'm going to give you the whole range of meaning, but then we'll discuss some of the ways he's using it in this passage. The first and most basic meaning of the flesh is the physical body. All right, is our physical bodies, okay, the bodies that God gave us, our materiality. And it is a universal trend in human religion and human philosophy to see the body as somehow bad. Or think about how many religions and sometimes even Christians who think of, I want to escape the body because it's weak and it's frail and it, and it, and it corrupts and it dies. But the scripture says unequivocally that the body is good. Okay? There's nothing fundamentally wrong with the bodies that God made. He made them. He delights in them. And the proof that he likes them, if you needed it, was that Jesus took on flesh. For him to take on flesh was not to take on sin. It was to take on the good body that he created in the first place so that he could redeem it. Now, sin comes along and sin will change things. But we have to start with sometimes in Scripture, when the Scripture talks about the flesh, it's just simply talking about the bodies that God made, that he gave us, that Jesus took on himself and that he intends to redeem one day in the resurrection. But then the meaning of flesh shades over into the human ability to reproduce, all right? the, human, the human ability to procreate. And we see this because it's used in context of genealogy or ancestry or family descent, or we might even say pedigree. All right? So we can see phrases in scripture like Jesus is descended according to the flesh from David. And it just speaks of his genetic descent from David. And again, this is not something bad, necessarily. All right? God started a family with Abraham, a family that he intended to have a genetic line of descent until the time of Jesus. But then we get a third shade of the meaning. So I said that second shade is the human ability to reproduce. This third shade of meaning is human potency especially virility. And this is where we're shading into negativity, especially male virility. All right. And this is where I would encourage you to think about somebody like Achilles in Homer. Someone strong, powerful, has many women, defeats all people in battle. All right. This is flesh in its power. Right. This is flesh in its athletic power and in his virility. Achilles is a great representation of flesh in a negative sense. And we see it in scripture with figures like Lamech. Remember Lamech? He's the first polygamist in the Bible. And he's, I like to joke that he's the first rapper. right? But he sings a song about how a young man insulted him and how he killed this young man for insulting him. That is flesh in this beginning to be proud of the strength of of the flesh, especially male flesh. Does that make sense? And we begin to see this kind of flesh in a negative way. In war, again, think Achilles, in art, 
We see it in politics. And I think we should also think here of what Paul is getting at in Philippians when he says, hey, listen, I had a great CV according to the flesh. If anybody had an ability to boast and brag about their flesh, it was me. Best stock in Israel. Best family. Circumcised the eighth day. Everything by the book. And he speaks of first his genealogy, and then he speaks of his accomplishments in Judaism. So it's his genes, it's his family, it's his heritage, it's his pedigree, but it's also, I was the most zealous. All right? And Paul says, that was my great confidence in the flesh. So now we're beginning to see this boasting, right? We begin to see it with the the Lamech idea, and now we're really seeing it. My genes, my heritage, and what I've accomplished. All right, a fourth sense of the flesh, mortality, weakness, and the shame associated with it. Our bodies fail. Our bodies fail. And there's this irony, and I don't know if you've ever noticed it. There's this great irony of the sort of potency of a figure like Achilles, because when you see somebody with power and youth and strength and ability, it's this amazing thing. But then it's really hard for young people in particular to think that body will fail you. That body will die. Remember a couple of years ago, my nephew, who was a college athlete, had a very fit guy. He had a back problem, and he was as weak as a baby with that back problem. It doesn't take much to make us frail. So this sense of flesh is that mortality, that weakness. All right? it's The flesh can do amazing things, but all flesh will be reduced to pathetic weakness and finally death. And that shades into, I lost my count, is this the fifth one? The vulnerability of the flesh that leads to fear, that leads to an existential kind of FOMO. Everybody knows what FOMO is, right? Fear of missing out. My flesh is failing. My flesh is going to fail. And so because of that fear, because of the fear associated with the weakness of flesh, there's this compensation. Either I'm going to compensate by achieving all these great things. Right? I'm going to leave a name for myself or I'm going to get as much pleasure as I can or I'm going to accomplish something. And in the face of decay, I'm going to try to try to shake my fists at the weakness of my body and say, look at what I've done. This fear leads into all kinds of things that are destructive, like rivalries and competition and superiority and exclusion of others. Again, it's this compensation for our mortality and the fact that we are finite and mortal. Sin and evil come from the desperate effort to compensate for that vulnerability. All right, that's where much sin and much evil comes from. And advertisers and conspiracy theorists and cult leaders and demagogues tap into this fear all the time. They know we feel it, and they know they can sell us something. They know they can steer us to a cause because of it. And think about the health industry. And I say health industry. I might more say the body worship industry. Okay, my Instagram, and maybe it's because of the algorithm has got me, but it's full of this dude. Have you seen this real ridiculously obnoxious dude who's like 
doing one-arm pull-ups and doing curls, and he's talking to you about how all the other diets are stupid and how you too can have a body like his if you only listen to his program. Health is one thing. That's body worship. That's, that's fear of the body doing what it naturally does, right? Health is one thing, but I think if you pay attention to a lot of that, I think there's a lot of body worship in our culture that comes from the significance of the body, but the frailty of the body. The flesh, in this sense, infects everything. It infects our politics. It infects our religion, and I'll give an example in a minute. And again, when it manifests, there's lots of exclusion. I'm in, you're out. There's lots of division. There's lots of competition. C.S. Lewis talks about in a great essay the temptation, the almost universal temptation to want to be in the inner ring, to want to be in the room where it happens, to want to be in the place where I'm on the inside and all these other people are on the outside. We know they don't. All right. That's another manifestation of the flesh. So there's a big picture of how the Bible talks about the flesh and what it means. Now, if we look at the Old Testament, one of the ways to describe the way God deals with his people in the Old Testament is he's tutoring them. He's teaching them not to trust the flesh, not to trust in the flesh, especially in that sense of human potency and human ability to accomplish things. God is continually doing things in the Old Testament that scream flesh is a problem. Don't trust it. Don't rely on it. God does things like choose a younger sibling instead of the older sibling, which would have been the firstborn, right? The one with all the promise. God says he wants to start a genetic people and he picks what? Barren people all the time. What's he saying? Don't trust the flesh. Don't trust this human life independent and apart from God. He chooses all the time unpromising people to accomplish spectacular things. Let me give just one way in which I think God is teaching, and it's relevant to our passage in the Old Testament about the weakness of the flesh. And that is the case of circumcision. All right, think about circumcision for a minute. Again, back to Achilles, a perfect picture of the flesh, like in a lot of the senses we've been talking about, is Achilles. He's powerful in war. He's eloquent in speech. He's beautiful to look at. He's spectacular. He's a conqueror of many women. He has great confidence in all of this. I mean, he knows that he can, he can take anybody. And he ultimately would rather die young in a glorious battle and have fame than age. And grow old through age. Now look at Abraham. Abraham is God's answer to Achilles. Right? If you're thinking according to the flesh, you're thinking, all right, God's going to choose somebody who's a match for Achilles in all these ways. He's not a match for Achilles in any of those ways. Think about Abraham. He's old. He clearly is not virile. He can't have kids. He doesn't talk much in the scriptures. We don't see eloquent speeches. He's not a king. And then God says, Abraham, get circumcised. Why circumcision? What, what is the point of circumcision? 
Circumcision was a symbol. It was a shadow. It was something he was trying to teach his people through it. It's a symbolic cut to the pride and confidence in the flesh. It is a symbolic cut to the Achilles-like pride in what human strength can accomplish on its own. This symbol screams, don't trust. Don't put confidence in the, the, the flesh and its native abilities. It cannot achieve the things that ultimately matter. I think it's a sign that's meant to almost be a mocking jab at Achilles-like human strength. We can think of figures in the scripture that are an awful lot like Achilles, like Saul, the first king of Israel, who ultimately failed. And we can think of figures in the scriptures like Penina, who was very fertile and had lots of kids and mocked Hannah, said, you can't have kids. That's the flesh. Exclusion, boasting, pride. So here's the interesting thing about the flesh, though, and this is what I want everybody to notice about the religious aspect of the flesh. What does sin do with this symbol, this practice that was meant to say the flesh is weak and you shouldn't trust it. Sin takes it and says, look at me. I'm circumcised. It's, it boasts. Okay, this is what Paul ultimately says, that Israel took this symbol that was meant to be I'm weak, and they said, look at me, I'm, I'm circumcised. I trust my flesh. And look at you, you're not. I exclude you. Or, or, you trust me, And I can make you have confidence in your flesh like me. Right? So sin, what it does is it twists this symbol meant to teach lack of confidence in the flesh. And it boasts about it. Something needs to be done about the flesh. Does that make sense? And I think all of these tutorials in the Old Testament were God's way of preparing for the ultimate blow that he would deal to the flesh. So what does the gospel do to the flesh? Well, just like circumcision symbolized, it cuts away, it cuts flesh away and connects us to God in Christ, who has all life and all vitality. It plugs us back into the power source that was the source meant for human thriving from the beginning. Adam and Eve were meant to eat from the tree of life. And because of sin, they were excluded from the tree of life. Well, the gospel cuts off that sinful, independent flesh and plugs us back into the life of God. Jesus takes flesh. He takes our weak flesh. He doesn't trust it. He doesn't rely on pedigree. He doesn't rely on human accomplishments. He submits that flesh to God. As Paul said last week, Jesus' death on the cross was the circumcision of flesh, the ultimate cutting away of flesh, the killing of weak, yet ironically boastful, independent human life. And faith in Jesus Christ gives us all of the life he has. It gives us access to all of that life. It gives us welcome by his father. Welcome. A welcome that we long for. It gives us life and energy to address our frailty and weakness. It gives us rootedness in love. We have this deep need for love and it connects us to love. It gives us security and identity. We know who we are. 
It gives us promise of the ultimate healing of the flesh and the promise of resurrection. That's what the gospel does. It deals the decisive blow to flesh. It gives us everything we need because, again, it unifies us with Jesus Christ. And so Paul is the enemy of every temptation to look elsewhere than union with Christ for resources for living. I want to say that again. Paul is the enemy of anything we would look to elsewhere than union with Christ for for resources for living. He will say in this passage, grasp Christ, hold on to him. Don't let go because it is in your union with Christ that everything is given. But again, we have to remember that even on this side of the cross, the flesh is insidious. If you in the Old Testament could take circumcision, a symbol of weakness, and turn it into something for boasting and exclusion, the flesh can do that with all kinds of things. We can take all kinds of good things. For example, maybe practices that TCF engages in and believes in, things like home group, and turn it into something to boast about or something to judge with. It can take anything. It can take prayer. This is what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus teaches on prayer and fasting and alms. He's saying, listen, flesh has turned prayer into a badge. Look at me. I'm a good boy. I pray. I fit in here because you're supposed to pray in this group and I pray. Look at me. And Jesus says, no, cut that off. Cut it off. Don't let prayer become something that was meant to connect you to God. It was meant to maintain that connection to God. Don't let the flesh turn it into an occasion for boasting. Prayer is good. Home groups are something we think is a wise tool. Never let it become an occasion for judgment or an occasion for boasting. Paul wants us to emphasize our connection to Christ. And not let any of these things become an occasion for the flesh. Amen? So let me pull out three things, I think, three things. We'll say three things. Uh, From these passages that I just want to emphasize, having laid that groundwork. The first is, he says, don't let anyone judge you with regard to uh, new moons and feasts and, and what you eat. He's saying specifically, guys, don't go back to these practices. And don't let anybody judge you for not engaging in them. The old practices of the old order, and you have everything in Christ. Everything they were pointing to, you already have. Circumcision. In Paul's case, it was circumcision, food laws, festivals of the calendar. Don't, he says, be concerned about what people think of you. Your father sees in secret. And you're to learn to live your life from that source, from that secret place. Don't let whatever good standards might be in a community turn into an occasion for, oh, I've got to fit in with what, they, what they're doing or they won't like me. That's the flesh again. Hold on to what is good and in particular hold on to Christ. That's the first thing. The second, remember, these are all shadows. All right, Paul uses that imagery of shadows and the thing casting a shadow. The old covenant and its system was a shadow and therefore it wasn't bad. Right? But it wasn't the thing itself casting the shadow. And human flesh turned that old system into occasions for boasting. But the substance, the thing casting the shadow has come. And I want to emphasize something that's not obvious at first. Jesus is the thing casting the shadow in the Old Testament. There are sacrifices in the Old Testament. 
Well, Jesus cast that shadow back because he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. But here's the thing that I want to emphasize. Paul says, we're the body of Christ. And he says, I want you guys to know that your lives together of offering your bodies to God as living sacrifices, of serving one another in love is what those shadows were pointing to. Does that make sense? Our life, as we live connected to Christ in faith, as we live offering ourselves to God, as we give ourselves in loving service to one another, that's what the sacrifices were pointing to all along. They didn't have a superior sacrifice. We do. Because it's a sacrifice that, per, that participates in the sacrifice of Jesus himself. Amen? And then finally, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. What keeps you in contact with him? We can't grasp him like the disciples could. What keeps you in contrast and contact with him? Faith. Being where he said he would be. Where two or more are gathered in his name. At this table. In places of worship. In places where his life is being poured out in service for others. Now, let me just emphasize that last one for a minute. Jesus poured his life out for us. He washed the disciples' feet. He gave himself in love. He says, no greater love has any man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. If you want to be connected to the rich vitality in Christ that changes and transforms and helps us live this life that we're called to live, learn to love. Learn to serve. Because he said he would be there. Because he's already been there. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we think, well, I need to do a few things before I give myself to that. And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. Get right to it. I will be with you in it. And when you mess up in it, when your motives are wrong in it, or when your flesh manifests, just kill that thing and keep going. Give yourself in love. But we're called to cling to Christ and to not give in to counterfeits. Amen? Amen. Amen.